Amen. Bill Gaither never heard it any better, I promise. Amen. Um, speaking of that song, He Touched Me. Have you ever been so aggravated at somebody at church that you just wanted to reach out and give them the right fist of fellowship in the name of Jesus? Some of y'all thinking, Lord, who's he talking about? Well, I'm not talking about here. Um, but if you have ever had that urge to karate chop somebody in the name of Jesus, there is a church for you. It's called Freedom Fellowship Church, and it's in Virginia Beach, Virginia. That's basically like any other church. They do all the same things that most other churches do, have preaching and singing and all this other stuff. But they also host cage fighting, where they teach karate and grappling chokeholds from their pastor, Preston Hawker, who calls himself the pastor of disaster. And the idea behind that is that uh, evangelism or, or that, that karate is an effective evangelism technique and that some people just need the devil kicked out of them, I guess. And regardless of how absurd that may be or how awesome that may strike you, anybody who's ever lived through a real church fight uh, knows that there's really nothing funny or enjoyable about it, is there? Church is supposed to be the one place, we think, the one place in the world where we can come and get away from the discord and the fighting and the disagreements. And so when there's some disunity or disharmony in the life of our local church, it can be one of the most stressful experiences in life. It can be a scary time when drama enters into the life and the story of God's people. But we know it does happen. Tonight we are going to return to the book of Acts, looking at a few more of the distractions that plagued the early church, and we are going to see in Acts chapter 15 the story of what is really a good church fight. It's a church fight that needed to happen. It's a church fight that really had the future of the church, as we know it, hanging in the balance. And they're not fighting about the color of the carpet. They're not fighting about who did or did not go to Sister So-and-So's baby shower. But they are going to go to war over the gospel itself. And their understanding of how Jesus saves people from their sin. And in doing that, we can learn as a church the danger of what happens when we drift away from the gospel of Jesus. That if we get confused about what the gospel really is, then we are in trouble. It's Acts 15, and we're going to read the biggest part of this chapter. So I'm not going to ask you to stand tonight. But Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1 says, Some men came down from Judea. We're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. 
They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. He quotes from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Quote, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered together the congreg- having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went, were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. At this point, the history of the church, uh, the church, the movement that is centered around the person of Jesus is about 15 years old. It's about 15 years from the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter number 15. And like most 15-year-olds, the church is growing, the church is exciting and excitable, but there's also some pretty dumb moments. That's the way it works with 15-year-olds, isn't it? And one of the real dirt moments that they have here is how do they relate to those who are coming to Jesus that don't have a Jewish background? Remember, the church started as a very Jewish movement. Jewish Savior, Jewish followers, Jewish city, Jewish language, Jewish scriptures. Everything's very, very Jewish. But if you read in the book of Acts, you'll see in Acts chapter number 10 that Peter takes the gospel to a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius, the first Gentile, responds to the gospel. And it's almost like a dam that is bursting as Gentiles become swept into this movement that's centered around Jesus. And so the Jewish believers are trying to figure out, how do these people fit? Where do they belong? What do we do with them? Churches are founded for non-Jewish people. Then churches are founded by non-Jewish people. That's in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13 and 14. And the growing church contributes to a growing controversy as there starts to be some disagreement about what makes someone a true Christian. And everything boils over to the point you see in Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1 that there are some people that are saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. To be a real Christian, the argument was, you have to become a Jew first. God came to the Jewish people. They would say he came to us. He gave us his word, gave us his prophets. He gave us his Messiah. 
You have to become one of us before you can become a Christian. So what you have in Acts chapter 15 is the church coming together to really debate this issue. It's the Council of Jerusalem, the first council in the history of the church. And this is a church that is going to get to the very heart of the gospel itself. How does God save people from their sins in Christ? How does God reconcile people to Himself? It's a church that also has to come to terms with its past. This is a church that is beginning the process of severing itself from its very Jewish roots. Something that is remarkable about the church today is that the church started as a movement of Jewish people, but it's not primarily Jewish anymore. Even today, it's not Jewish anymore. We see people having to make decisions in the church for the good of those who do not yet belong. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. You see a church that is bridging the gap between what God had done and what He would do, anchoring itself in Christ. But the primary focus is, who is the God who saves? And how does He save? Folks, there are a lot of things in the life of the church that really aren't worth fighting for. Some things that are important to me and important to you may not matter. But there's one thing that is always worth fighting for. There's one thing that's worth dying for, and that is the message of the gospel of the grace of God, that God saves people from their sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone, according to the Word of God alone, that is always worth fighting for. And the believers who stood for that here in Acts chapter 15, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, those men understood that if the church lost the gospel, then it had lost its right to exist. They understood, to put it very simply, that if we are wrong about the gospel, it does not matter what else we are right about. If we are wrong about this point, we are wrong about everything else. We lose our reason for existing and we lose our voice to speak to this culture that needs Jesus. If we lose this, we lose everything. But you see in this text how easy it is to drift away from that. You notice in the Word of God that the Bible says in verse 5, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees were buying into this. You can read the book of Galatians to get the Apostle Paul's perspective on all of these events. And you can see how even some of those Gentile churches were starting to embrace this error. What happens when a church drifts away from the gospel and how do we prevent it? Tonight we're going to look at that through the details of this story. There are three of them that I want to point out to you that I think warn us and also help us as we think about the danger of drifting away from the gospel. And the first detail is the controversy itself here in verses 1 through 5. What is the controversy? Well, there were a group of men from Judea, the proper name for these people, Judaizers. They are legalists. We know they belong to the Pharisees who are coming to these Gentile churches. And they are saying to them, listen, we're, great that, we're, we're glad that you believed in Jesus. But to truly get everything God has for you, to truly belong to the Jesus movement, you have to first come under the law of Moses in the Old Testament. You have to be circumcised and really, you have to become a Jew first. It's interesting what the Bible says that they wanted to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse number 5. And the Bible teaches us there that when Paul and Barnabas heard this, verse number 2, there was no small dissension. That's a polite way of saying they were ticked off when they heard this. The word dissension is a word that means an insurrection, that Paul and Barnabas are ready to fight. And it says it wasn't a small dissension. This is a big deal. Because the story of how God saves is a big deal. And Paul and Barnabas rightly understood what I hope you know tonight. That any amount of human effort added to the message of the gospel robs the gospel of its power. It robs it of its glory. It robs it of being the message that we need for salvation. 
And Paul and Barnabas said, we have got a problem. We have got to correct this issue. And so you can see how this trickled maybe into one church. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, this is wrong. And it goes over to another church. And this church is confused about what they're hearing at this church. And this other church a couple hundred miles away, they get word of all this. And everybody wants to know what's going on. How do we really become Christians? The Jews maybe are saying one thing. The Gentiles have believed something else, but they're not sure if they're right. And they finally say, we've got to get this settled. And so they're going to convene with the elders of the church, the apostles in the city of Jerusalem, in the mother church. But how did this happen? How did they get to this point? Well, verse number 5 tells us that at some level this is connected to the group of people known as the Pharisees. If you've read the Gospels, then you know that the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys of the Gospel. But amazingly, even though they're the bad guys of the Gospels, they look a lot like good guys, don't they? The Pharisees were a very strict, very religious, very conservative cultural movement. They believed the Bible was the Word of God. Believed it from cover to cover. Of course, for them, the cover was Genesis and the other cover was Malachi, but they believed all of it. They believed every miracle in there. They believed that God had chosen His people Israel. They believed that you need to keep the law. In fact, the Pharisees believed so strongly that you need to keep the law that they wanted to add a bunch of other laws on top of God's law to make sure there was no chance at all that you could violate the law. The Pharisees were not just a theological movement, but they were also a cultural movement. And this is important. And probably were very well-intentioned when they started in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. Because the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, became under the influence of a lot of pagan nations, in particular Greek thought. And the Pharisees said, we need to preserve our identity. That's important. We need to preserve who we are as the Jewish people. And we need to preserve who God has made Himself known to be to us. And they said, we are going to toe the line. We are going to be strict. We are going to be very, very rigid. And they tried their very, very best to do that. Of course, for them, that looked like being circumcised and keeping all of the other laws of Moses and the traditions on top of that and the rituals on top of that and anything else they may have come up with. Hundreds and even thousands of laws about what you could do when you could do it. Even today, as an example, Orthodox Jewish people. Orthodox Jewish people will not turn their lights on between sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday in observance of Sabbath because using electricity is too much like work and you can't work on the Sabbath day. That's the way that the Pharisees lived, strictly observing their interpretation of the law of God. We look at that today and say, you know, that's very weird. Jews can't even eat bacon. Something's wrong with all this, right? But I would submit to you today that this can be in all of our hearts. That the fault line of legalism and self-righteousness runs through every single human being's heart. That we want to believe there's something that we can do or something that we did do that contributed to how God has saved us and how God has blessed us. And maybe these other people didn't quite do everything that we did. We believe, sure, yes, God saves us by grace alone, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But maybe, functionally, day to day, God really blesses us because of how stinking great we are. We conflate our sanctification, how God makes us righteousness, with our justification, how God declares us righteousness, and believe that really our standing before God depends on how great we are. For them, it was cultural Judaism. It was cultural legalism. For us, it can be cultural Christianity. Come to church three times a week. Come to DT. Come to Sunday school. Teach Sunday school. Give my tithes and give my offerings. Go visit folks when they're in the hospital. And very quickly, that can turn us into superior self-righteous creeps. But here's how self-righteous human beings are, just as an example. We need to be on guard against this kind of Phariseeism because we are religious people. 
But there are people in this world that are absolutely not religious people that would look down on you and judge you because you are so uptight, so holier than thou. Think you're better than everybody else in the way that you judge them. And they're Pharisees about Pharisees. I'm glad I'm not self-righteous like all those religious people. Why? Because that's in every single one of us. But how does it happen? How did that happen to these people? Especially notice in verse number 5 that the Bible says these people who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they were believers. Imagine they had believed the gospel. And yet they're wrong about the gospel later on in their lives. How does that happen? Here's how I think it happens. Here's how we, we slip our good works in and, and lose sight of salvation as a free gift and we blow everything to pieces. It happens like this. We're often taught by very well-meaning people, Christians don't do blank. Christians don't do blank. I've heard everything from playing cards, smoking cigarettes, going dancing, going to the bowling alley. Christians don't do that. I don't know why Christians don't bowl. That's not clear to me. But Christians don't do that. And many of you grew up hearing that kind of preaching, didn't you? Bless God, if you love the Lord, you're not going to be down at that bowling alley. Is that right? You grew up hearing that. And even though they were saying to you, maybe, you know, don't let other people corrupt you. Don't let other people influence you. What you heard was, Christians don't go to the bowling alley. So if I don't go to the bowling alley, I must be a Christian. And what you really lived was, and what you really embraced was, and many people around us have embraced, is I don't go to the bowling alley, so I must be a Christian. And there's a subtle shift in our thinking that happens where we don't do this or we do do that and Christians don't do this or they do do that. And so because we're not doing it or we are doing it, we think, well, that must make me a Christian. And that Christians are people who have done this. No, folks, Christians are people who have owned their sin and trusted in Christ. Richard Lovelace, who is a, a theologian, said, Those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. That's what we do. We're looking for something to prop us up. And it can be our church attendance. It can be our giving. It can be our morality. It can be our politics. It can be our racial identity. That was part of this in Acts 15. It can be so many different things. This is what makes me secure. But Paul and Barnabas said, no, this is a problem. It is Christ who sets us free and Christ who makes us secure. And if we lose that, we lose everything. And you go through these verses and you see how they understood this was so dangerous. In verse 10, they understood in this text that if we lose the gospel, then we are left with nothing but spiritual bondage. Do you see what Peter says to them? He says, you're putting a yoke on these people. He said, you're putting these Gentiles who have been saved from slavery back into bondage. You're putting them into the bondage of your religious rules. You, put, you rob people of their salvation, of the assurance of their salvation, and put them on this treadmill that they will never get off. I have spent some time on a treadmill. A treadmill is just a $200 coat hanger. For most of us. But at one time, I thought, I thought I wanted to take up jogging for some reason. And so I spent some time on the trail. And I got to where I could do three, five, three to five miles without stopping. And I noticed something. I could do three to five miles on a treadmill. You know what happened when I got off? I was in the exact same place I got on at. Kill myself and not go anywhere. That's why a treadmill is named after a medieval torture device. And what Peter is saying is, that's what you're doing with all of your religious rules devoid of Christ. You're putting people on a treadmill that will never take them anywhere. And all it will do is exhaust them and wear them out and kill them. Yeah. But then they also say in verse number 5, I think, that they're aware of how religious self-righteousness produces a spiritual class system. 
The Jews come into these Gentile churches and say, now look, we're glad you're here. But here's how you need to become like us to really get everything God has for you. Here's how you need to be more like me. And what happened was instantly you have people in the church that have arrived and people who haven't arrived. You've got people who've got it all and people who are missing a few things. People who are looking down on others and people who are looking up to others with insecurity saying, I'll never measure up. Paul wrote to that kind of church in Galatians 5, 26 when he said, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. He said, If we understand the gospel as a gift of grace, we have no right to look down on anyone for anything. But we also have no right to look up to someone in jealousy for any reason. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And if we make that ground unbalanced, then we are in a mess. But they would also understand, I think, that you fall into this self-righteous, religious, performance-based mindset, then you really lose the whole mission of the church. That's going to be pretty much the thrust of James's argument that God is forming a people from all backgrounds. But if really all this is about how good I am and what I do and how much I can accomplish, what do those other people matter? What difference does it make about them? I've got my own issues to work on. We lose the fact that the gospel is a gift of grace. This is a big deal. This is the deal. So that's the controversy. But if you read verses 6 through 21, you hear about the combatants. There's some guys that are going to step into the ring and they're going to go to blows for Jesus. And we know them from reading the Bible and other places. It's Peter, the tag team of Paul and Barnabas. And last but not least, the super heavyweight, the Lord's half-brother James. Now, we don't really hear anything which is interesting. You don't hear what Paul and Barnabas said. You don't get anything that they said in verse number 12. We just know they were there. So I can't tell you what they said. It was probably good, knowing Paul, you know, is all right. But we do know what Peter and we know what James said. So let's look at what Peter said, verses 7 through 11. Peter begins by recounting, verse 7, how God had made a choice to use him. I love what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the same mouth that said I didn't know who Jesus was. Isn't that amazing? That, God said that's going to be the mouth that's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Isn't that incredible? And he said God just made this choice and took me to the Gentiles, talking about what happened to him back in Acts chapter number 10. And Peter said, look, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes that God gave them the Holy Spirit exactly the way he did to us. And that God through grace made them clean exactly the way he did to us. And when Peter uses that word clean, verse number 9, when they were saying they were cleansed by faith in verse 9, that would have been this huge alarm that starts going off in the Jewish mind. Because for them, all of those ceremonial rituals were about being clean to be welcomed into the presence of God in tabernacle worship or in temple worship. And Peter says, look, we have been made clean to enter into the presence of God through Jesus alone. And so that now the Holy Spirit has moved inside of us so that those Gentiles that you would not welcome into your temple, they are now the temple of God. It's an amazing thing that Peter says. It's incredible his awareness of the gospel. He says it is Christ who makes us clean, not our customs and not our traditions. Friend, please know today that it is Jesus who makes us clean in the presence of God. It is not the fact that we have performed here at church. It is not the fact that our family is better than somebody else's. It is not anything at all that we have brought to the table. It is Christ and Christ alone and His blood and His life and His death and His resurrection. And God says, because that is yours, I can be yours. Now, because Peter believes that, he's able to follow up with something that 
most religious people who are in love with how religious they are are never able to do. Look at what he says in verse 10. Now therefore, he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? Peter said, you are so proud of the tradition of your fathers. And you're so proud of the rules that you have come up with. But Peter said that self-righteous religion did not help them and it did not help you. And he said, all of us here believe that we're only saved by the grace of God. He said, Jesus is the only one that can ever help us. He said, you look back over your past. He said, you weren't able to keep the rules that you thought were so important yourself. And you are such a mess that you needed Jesus. Why are you going to put those people under bondage? Now, let's take that and let's lay that here in North Alabama. And let's talk about our religious culture. And let's talk about how we live as Baptists. Is it not true that Bible Belt Christianity looks down on homosexuals? Boy, that Caitlyn Jenner, that's what's wrong with our world. People don't know the difference between up and down and boys and girls and black and white. We say that, don't we? It's a little more colorful, but I'm in the pulpit, so I can't say it the way y'all said it. We say that. It's perversion. It's depraved. And we pass a blind eye over our kids when they sleep together, don't we? We talk about the perversion and the moral decay all around us. We have men in our church that consume pornography like candy. Raise our daughters to dress well like professionals. We can be proud, folks. We can be proud over things like race. Because you had so much to do with that, didn't you? Or politics. Get proud over those things. We, we talk about the materialism and the consumerism that's all around us. And we're all in debt to our eyeballs. We talk about all these things. And Peter says, look. He said, here's the truth. He said, that junk had never helped you. It hadn't ever helped anybody else. He, said, he would say to us, you Baptists are in such a mess. The only hope for you was the grace of God. The only hope for you was God and His grace reaching down in all of your self-righteous pride, pulling you out of that mess and setting you firmly on Jesus. So what right do you have to condemn these other people and look down on them? I say glory to God because, Peter, that's my testimony. My testimony is not drugs, alcohol, sex, and rock and roll. My testimony is the Baptist church. That's what God saved me out of. He saved me out of this kind of self-righteous nonsense that looked down on everybody else. And he brought me to the point where the only hope that I have is the grace of God. Folks, that's all any of us have. Well, they're not done. Peter's already knocked them out, but they're not done fine. Paul and Barnabas tag in. Don't know what they said, but then James comes up. James is going to have everybody's attention because James is the half-brother of Jesus. And if you're going to stand up in a meeting of the church and the names Mary and Joseph are on your birth certificate, people are going to listen to what you have to say. And so James is going to step up and he, he says a lot. Really, he goes over the whole uh, worldwide vision of what God is doing in sending Jesus, restoring the tents of David. He's quoting from the book of Amos, uh, bringing this remnant of mankind to the Lord, and all of these kind of things. But really what he's saying is that God has a purpose in the gospel to bring glory to himself. And he's going to bring glory to himself by bringing these people who are so far outside of the nation of Israel into that covenant relationship so that those people will glorify the Lord. And... 
it really does come down to this. What really glorifies the Lord about the gospel? What glorifies the Lord about the gospel is that in saving us through the work of Christ alone, that God does what only God could do. That there's nothing that I can take glory in. There's nothing that I can take credit for. So that when I get to heaven, if somebody asks me, what are you doing here? I can say, honestly, the only thing I ever did was sin. And Jesus did the rest of it. And Jesus paid it all. He took every ounce of the wrath of God that was due me. He obeyed every single law in my place. Jesus is the one who's done it all. And James is in effect saying, listen, that brings glory to God. Your self-righteousness, your religion that adds your work to what Jesus has done, that doesn't bring glory to God. It brings glory to you, but it doesn't bring glory to God. And God's not interested in sharing His glory with you. So James says, that's enough. Let's write a letter to these Gentile churches welcoming them, telling them to love Jesus and help one another and move on. And apparently James has his way because that's exactly what they do. And that is the last perspective I would give you here. And that's the conclusion of the whole matter. What happens after the dust-up is over. It's verses 22, really, all the way down to verse number 35. This is amazing that the conclusion of the fight is that they write a letter. It's a different time, wasn't it? We're going to write a letter. To let all of these Gentile churches that were planted back in Acts chapter 13 and 14 through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas... That they're going to say to them, listen, you are welcome in Christ. You have just as much rights, just as much standing, just as much freedom as we do because of what Christ has accomplished. Not because you're Jewish, not because you're not, but because of Jesus. Welcome, we love you and we welcome you. And you can see, if you read these verses, you just see the excitement, particularly verse number 31. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement You can imagine these churches of these people that have been saved out of all kinds of nonsense hearing that there's more religious rules to keep. And Paul and Barnabas come into your church on the way to Jerusalem and they tell you, look, we're going to handle it. We're going to take care of it. And we heard that Peter and James are going to help us be there and they're going to take care of it too. And and you can imagine being kind of caught in limbo and then finally they come back with this letter and they hear from Paul and Barnabas and these other guys like Silas and it's got the apostles' name signed to it and they're thinking, man, this really is good news that God sets us free in Jesus. And here we are 2,000 years later, a bunch of Gentiles that haven't worried at all about being circumcised or keeping the law, but have just believed the simple gospel of grace in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But that's not all that the letter says. There is a concern that James has. A very interesting pastoral concern. Verse 20, he mentions it, and then they put it in the letter. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. What from, what has, from what has been strangled and from blood. And that, again, is probably talking about things sacrificed to idols. So James has two concerns about these churches. Even though he is concerned that they would lose the gospel among their own self-righteousness, he's also concerned that they would take the gospel and they would use it to become idolaters. And they would use it to give themselves permission to become sexually immoral. Those are his two concerns. So when he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idol, an issue that is addressed actually quite a lot in the, Old Te- or in the New Testament, he understands that these people were saved out of idol worship. It's who they are. It's part of their background. They didn't go to Bible school every summer. They went to, you know, pagan temple camp, Zeus camp. I don't know what they called it, but that's what they did every summer. Uh, their, their background was going to sacrifice to idols, sometimes worshiping these idols in just all kinds of terribly depraved and wicked ways. And so now they're saved out of that, and that culture's all around them. And James says, it is the gospel message that gives you freedom to stay away from that. 
It doesn't bring you into bondage into religion, thank God, but it doesn't leave you in the bondage to your sin either. And we look at that and say, oh, you know, that's sweet. Those poor Gentiles that are out there worshiping Aphrodite or whoever else, God brought them out of that. And we think, what does that have to do with us? Well, just so you are aware that all of us have idols in our lives. The prophet Ezekiel called them in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse number 3, idols of the heart. We don't carve gods out of rock and wood and granite and all that kind of thing. But we do have things that we worship and things that we love. Worship the God of approval. Worship the God of materialism. Worship the God of success. All these things we can worship. And sometimes as Christians, if we're not careful, we think that the gospel makes us better idolaters. We think that the message of God's grace and forgiveness allows us to pursue whatever we would want to pursue in life without any consequence whatsoever. And really, that's the principle that James is laying down to these people. Jesus did not save you to make you a better sinner. But is it not true that a lot of people live that way? They live as if Jesus saved them so they could sin better than they ever did before. Friends, that is insane. And James says, no, if that's what you believe, you've misunderstood the gospel. Just as it's possible in Acts 15 to be a Christian Pharisee, it's also possible to be a Christian idolater. It's possible to so resent and reject uh, traditions of the church and rules of the church that you flip the other way and you become a Christian idolater. The second problem was just as personal and just as real and relevant for us today, the problem of sexual immorality. Now those two things in the ancient world, idolatry and sexual immorality, they went hand in hand. But the first century culture that they were writing to is every bit as pornographic and, and sex crazed as our own culture is. These people, in other words, in these Gentile churches, they had been nasty, and the apostles knew it. And they said, listen, we need to help these people out. And so they pushed back against the prevailing sexual ethic of the day and said, yes, you are forgiven by Jesus. And you are made clean by the work of Christ and suited to be the temple of God, which is amazing. It's an amazing thing. But don't defile yourself. Paul would write about this in 1 Corinthians. Don't defile yourself by engaging in sexual immorality. You may think, why in the world do you want to preach about sexual immorality in a Sunday night church service? Well, we don't understand necessarily how the culture's way of thinking about sexuality is pressed upon our minds. So that we really don't see, folks, we don't see how pornographic our culture is. You don't have to download something off the internet. You don't have to be watching late night cable television. You can find this junk all around you, but we're so used to seeing it that we don't notice it. We don't notice it. I mean, honestly, how many half-naked or three-quarter naked, if that's a thing, people have you seen this week? I'm not talking about actually seeing them, but on TV or in magazines. If you actually saw them, then you need to find somewhere else to go, all right? But we, see, we just see it all the time, right? And so we see it, and we never see it. We don't realize how insane all of this is. And again, Jesus is, is saying to his church through the apostles, listen, Beware of that pressure on you. Because just as the ancient culture had embraced idolatry and immorality, our culture has embraced the lie that sex really is the greatest God there is. We've embraced that. It, sex offers the greatest freedom. Sex offers your true identity. Sex offers the greatest meaning. And the only way to fight that, which is so tied to our fallen nature and so tied even to how God himself has designed us, the only way to fight that is with the gospel message. And I think the spirit of this letter is as relevant today to us 
as to any sermon that I could preach to you. That the only way to be forgiven of your sexual past and free from sexual temptation is to look to Christ and to know Him and to follow Him. But please notice, here's why I wanted to go through all that. Please notice the the flow of the letter. Please notice how this works. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. You see that? They're saying, here is how God is wanting us to write to you to say that you are welcomed in Christ. And then here's the requirement, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols from blood and keep yourself from sexual immorality. You see how they write to them. They write to them and they say, here is what Christ has done. Here is how you are saved. And here's what that does for your life. They don't say, listen, you bunch of stinking idolatrous perverts. What's wrong with y'all? By the way, Jesus loves you. They come to them first with the gospel. They come to them first with the message of salvation. Then they say, here's what God expects you to do. The way we lose the gospel is by getting that backward. The way we lose the gospel is by saying, now, first of all, here's what you have to do to belong. Here's what you have to do to be like us. Here's what you have to do to be accepted. And here's the message of the cross tacked on the end of all of that. That's what they were doing in Jerusalem. That's what the Judaizers were doing. But here, the apostles get it right. They go to the cross first. They go to Jesus first. And then they say, here's how it changes you. Friends, when we lose the gospel in our churches, it happens because we get the cart before the horse. The first church that I pastored, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Morganton, North Carolina, was a little family church, a country church, back on the back side of South Mountain in Burke County, North Carolina. And... There had been a controversy in the church, had been several, but there had been a controversy in that church sometime during the 70s when they had a revival. And the revival preacher had come in and he had blasted everybody for a week for their sin. And the chief sin that was on his radar was the sin of watching soap operas. That was a particular problem in the church at that time because that pastor was well known for his love of soap operas. Now, I don't know. I didn't know that, brother. I just say that's not my thing, all right? And so there was a a huge controversy. Bless God, Christians don't watch soap operas. What's wrong with you people watching them sleep around and cheat on one another and all this other stuff? You you know how the sermon probably went. You weren't even there to hear it. I wasn't even alive when it was preached. I know exactly how it went. And what he preached to them, at least the way I heard it told to me, what he preached to them was Christians do not watch soap operas. If you are a Christian, you do not watch soap operas. And what many of those people heard was, Christians don't watch soap operas. A Christian is a person who does not watch soap operas. I don't watch soap operas, so I must be a Christian. We get that confused so easily in our mind, don't we? Friend, I'm not preaching to you tonight about soap operas. I don't care if you watch soap operas. There are probably better things you can do with your time. What I do care about is whether or not you are confused about the gospel. I'm not even saying you're lost. I'm saying that somehow you've got it distorted in your mind since you believe the gospel that maybe somehow it does have something to do with what you're doing or what you're not doing. And friends, if that infects our church, it will kill our church. A church that has lost the gospel has no reason to exist. A church that has lost the gospel does not plant churches. A church that has lost the gospel does not win souls. A church that has lost the gospel does not produce righteous living. A church that has lost the gospel does not have freedom. A church that has lost the gospel does not have unity. 
a church that has lost the gospel has lost everything. Now tonight, I don't feel as if we are in the situation where we have lost the gospel the way they did in Acts chapter 15. But friends, it could happen. It happens in all of our hearts every day. And what we need is to continually be brought back to the message of grace. Continually to be reminded of the glory of Christ and the astonishment of the free gift of salvation. And we should earnestly pray that it never infects our church. And when the times come to fight for it, make that the issue you fight on. Make that the hill to die on. Make that the place where you stand by the grace of God. And say, this is the issue that makes or breaks Sharon Heights Baptist Church. Let's stand together today. We're going to have a quick hymn of invitation. I don't know how you may need to respond today. But it would be good if you are a member here of this church. If you love this church, just to come and say, Lord, help us always to keep the gospel at the center of what we do. As we sing this song, if you need to come, the altar is going to be open tonight.